You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Oppression and injustice and the, the effects of all of those problems that we see around the world have uh, the ability to polarise and to divide opinion. And, and I guess when I think about oppression, um, I think about countries and uh, places around the world where you might have regimes or hardline dictators or things like that which oppress minority groups and, and treat them poorly. And, and that's of course something that's unjust. But perhaps you might think about injustice as something which is something that has affected you personally. And, and all of us have been touched personally by some form of injustice or know of someone at least who has been at the receiving end of something that we would consider to be highly unjust. But um, I suppose when I was thinking through this, this subject, the, the thing that really popped into my mind is when we look at history, there's two things that, that come out for me about um, societies and regimes which are unjust and, and oppressive. So the first one that came to my mind was communist Russia in the uh, 1920s when Stalin came to power, and uh, particularly starting from uh, 1936 with the series of great purges and, and the uh, establishment of the gulags and the political repressions. It's estimated that Stalin killed something on the order of 20 million of his own people. And that's without considering the number of people who died of other nationalities or adding in those who died of starvation and, and other effects um, as a result of poor decision making and, and the, uh, the regime. By one account, one in 100 adults died in communist Russia and, and well, the USSR at the time. So that's about 1,600 people per day dying as a result of this uh, oppressive system. And, and as a government system worldwide, communism has actually um, been blamed for the deaths of at least 100 million people. Um, that's, that's a conservative number. But the other one that came to mind comes from the same era. era. Hitler rose to power in 1933 and that paved the way for the atrocities of the 1940s, the, uh, the death camps, where six million Jews died in um, those death camps as Hitler attempted to exterminate the entire population of Jews throughout Europe. But in addition to them, there was another three or so million people who were Slavs or Gypsies or um, homosexual people or, or other minorities that were deemed to be subhuman by the Germans at the time who died. And, and those two examples really cover the two extremities of politics. You've got the far right and you've got the far left represented there, which, which really just demonstrates to us that it really doesn't matter what political persuasion you may affiliate yourself with. Left unrestrained, mankind is going to go to these excesses of cruelty. And, and they, this is the results that we're going to see. So we're going to see this, this oppression. We're going to see this injustice. And people won't even realise how they ended up getting there. Um, unless you think the, the world has learned from the, the past... Here's an example of what's happening right now. 
in the Ukraine at the moment, we're witnessing the delayed effects of the collapse of the, you know, uh, the, uh, the USSR. The same excess, the same cruelty, the same methods are being applied by the Russians in this instance to the Ukrainians and all of that oppressiveness, all that cruelty that came out in the 20th century is playing out before our very eyes now. And this is a really difficult subject to come to grips with because many things that we hear about, many things that we see are, are unfair. It's, it's not fair that innocent people are dying and we need to be able to understand what it is. Now, now the fact that it's unfair that there's all this cruelty and there's all this injustice in the world has been enough to cause many people to write God off. God either doesn't exist or if God does exist, he's absolutely inept, he can't do anything. He's, he's clearly not a God of love and he's, he's not all powerful because if he was, why are all these things happening around us in the world? And that's the line of argument that the leaders of the evolutionary movement, such as Christopher Hitchens and, and, and Stephen Fry um, is another one, um, are, are, it's, it's their fallback arguments, their main argument against why God can't exist. And so we need to try and unpack that a little bit tonight. How can there be a God? How can it be all-powerful? How can it be a loving God? And all of these horrible things are happening around us in the world. Well, the story of the Bible is one of God exercising great patience with people who have made their own choice to ignore what he's asked of them. People who ridicule him, who doubt his existence, who use their positions to turn other people away. The world's never been any different to what it actually is now. But the, the key part of this story is that there always comes a point in time where God acts decisively. And we can map that through history. So we can see that in the Bible and we can map those events through history where God allows people to go their way. He asks them to change, they refuse, and then he acts. And that's, that's a pattern that we're going to explore in a little bit more detail as we go through tonight. And one of the really key things here to take away is that God has promised that he will once again act decisively in the future. So what we're aiming to see tonight is that there are reasons for the bad things that are happening in the world. I'm, I'm not going to claim that I can tell you why certain events happen. That's, that's not, um, it's not possible. And in fact, it's incorrect to try and link everything that goes wrong with a specific action of God. What we're dealing with is there are some events that are certainly God's actions and God's consequences that he gives, and then there are other things that are a consequence of um, the, the problem that we're going to discuss in more general. So what I actually hope we're going to achieve tonight is that rather than seeing that the state of the world is evidence against God, we're going to see that the state of the world is actually something that should provide us with hope, something that should actually increase our faith in God's ability and in God's control and in the future that he's actually promised for us. And the reason that I say this is that the, the state of the world is, in, in itself is what can give us that confidence. God has a solution to all of these things. And as we explore this further, 
throughout the course of tonight, we, we want to start to understand some of those details and how all of these things that are happening really fit into the bigger picture. Well, in its first book, the book of Genesis, the Bible commences with the story of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And in chapter 3, we see the record of their failure to obey the commandment of God, disobedience to God's commandment, and that is what God calls the first sin. And so sin has now entered into the world. The consequence of that failure by Adam and Eve is that God made them mortal. So they were now uh, the possessors of degenerating bodies that over time was, were going to decay away until finally death occurred. And naturally, by the laws of genetics, they passed that trait onto their, their children, their descendants. Well, not only were Adam and Eve's descendants mortal like their parents, but they also inherited that um, impulse towards being disobedient, towards sin. And that tendency to choose what pleases self has been passed on to all of us. And that comes with consequences. And the consequence in this case is that the majority of people in the world, very shortly, began to ignore God's commandments, as, as Adam and Eve had done, and they started to do whatever it was that they decided they felt like doing instead. And so, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and I might get you to turn there, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, we read that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is God's assessment of the population of the earth. This, this is what God thinks of people. They were evil continually. But verse 8, we've got a, an astounding contrast. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we've got the vast majority of the population of the earth has chosen to go their own way. And God has assessed them and said, everyone that I can see is um, evil and the imagination of their hearts is, is towards evil. And that, that's their natural state of mind. And yet we've got this man, Noah, who is just and perfect. And verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so now we've got a, a description of this society which is, has corrupted themselves, and they have completely given themselves over to doing whatever it is that they would like to do. Self-interest, self-gratification is the order of the day. They refuse totally to respond to God. But before God sends this judgment, Noah is given a commandment. And he's told to preach to them, to warn them. And, and this is a commandment that he doesn't fail in. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 5, we read that he is a preacher of righteousness. And so Noah and his family are given this tremendous responsibility by God to warn people. While they're constructing the ark, they're told that they need to warn people about the impending doom, about the judgments that God is sending upon the earth. It's almost an entirely unresponsive audience, but they did this faithfully. 
And so when God sent the, the great flood to submerge the entire surface of the earth over the space of nearly a, an entire calendar year, it was only Noah and his family, a total of eight people, along with the animals um, that were in the ark, who were saved. Every other human being died that was on the face of the planet. So only about 1,600 or so years after God had created the planet in perfection for, for beauty and for glory, God had to, inst- had to destroy an entire civilize- civilization. And, and some calculations place the, the sorts of numbers of, of people at around 2 billion. So we're talking significant numbers of people. And, and the reason this is done is because they had turned aside from God's laws and they'd filled the beautiful planet that he had created with corruption and with violence. They turned their back on God. And Peter's point in this is that God was right. God is righteous to condemn that generation and to condemn those people and to destroy them. It was God's prerogative as the creator to do what he did. And this is entirely consistent with God's approach. He provided them with a fair warning. He provided them with an opportunity to change. They exercised their free will and chose not to. And so, if you are still in uh, Genesis chapter 6, have a look at verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And so Noah was given 120 years, or this, this group of people. From the day that God said, I'm going to bring this judgment, they were given a, a period of 120 years while Noah constructed the boat that was going to be the salvation of, of all that were saved. Um, and he used that time not only to build, but to tell people about what God was doing. And so this is the first illustration that the Bible gives of a principle which carries on and is repeated time and time again. Since the, the creation about 6,000 years ago. And this is a pattern that we can identify as being repeated through history. And we're not going to go into those those repetitions and and those patterns, but we can see this pattern repeated over and again through history. And so this is something that we can take away as as a little something for us to be encouraged by. It it can give us confidence that God does what he says. This is a God that we can trust. This is a God who's going to do exactly what he says. And when he says, I've got a solution for the mess that the world is in, He actually means it, and he will do something about it. And so this is the principle. God gives a commandment, and he he asks people to do something. The person that is commanded, or or the majority of people, in the case of the example we've looked at, has a choice. And most people make a choice not to take any notice of what God has asked of them. So the majority of people in that group are going to fail to keep God's commandments. God warns them about the consequences of that and he uses various methods. So back in uh, the Old, Old Testament days, there was prophets that were raised up to warn people. Today we've got the Bible and we've got warnings that are written for us um, to, to take notice of. And we've got you know, the witness of prophecy and other things that can give us confidence that what God has said in the past, he will follow through and he will do. The majority of people then ignore those warnings. Some people, of course, respond, the majority don't. And eventually, God says, well, the time's come where there's going to be judgment. 
But then he shows mercy. And that judgment time, not, not always, but at times, is, is extended. And, and like we saw with Noah, 120 years was given from the day that judgment was pronounced before it actually fell. And so God shows mercy. The judgment occurs at the time that he sets and in the way that he appoints. And so that, that's the principle that the Bible demonstrates many, many times. And so, just to reiterate, we've seen the commandment that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were asked to obey God's law. They chose to disobey God's law. They had consequences fall upon them. Their descendants were asked to obey God's law. They chose not to obey God's law. And over a period of time, the depravity, the, the uh, corruption and the violence spread throughout the world. And... Um, God eventually said about 1,480 years or so before the flood came, the time's come where I'm going to bring judgments upon them. But I'm going to wait for 120 years just in case there's some people still who might respond. Noah and the the few other faithful people who um, were still around, including his his father and his grandfather and, and a few other family members, told people about the impending judgments. They built the boat and they preached. Unfortunately, nobody bothered to listen. So after those 120 years had expired, Noah and the other seven members of his family entered the ark along with the animals and the, the, the provender and the, and the forage that was, was necessary and the flood came. Everyone on the planet died just as God had said. And so this is a demonstration of both God's righteousness, he was right to pronounce judgment, he was right to do what he said, but also his mercy. He gives us opportunities to respond. Now, after the flood, the the people who repopulated the earth very quickly forgot about God, very quickly forgot about God's commandments and what God had asked of them. And now God chooses a different way of dealing with people and a different method of calling people to a knowledge of his ways and a knowledge of his purpose. And he selects a man named Abraham. And he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is in the area that we now call Iraq. And he asked him to come, ultimately, and settle in the land that is known as Israel today. And and this land mass, this area, was, was promised to Abraham as a... Um, as a reward for his faithfulness in obeying God's command. And so the family of Abraham, the Jewish people, was the the vehicle by which God was going to introduce his ways and what he desired of people to the rest of the population in the world. Now, the process of working and calling those people persisted until... We got to about 2,000 years later when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth. And when those people rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah in about AD 30, they were condemned. And God now pivots to another method of trying to teach people and call people out of the world. And he does that by sending 12 men initially. The, The apostles of Jesus Christ were sent out into the world to preach the gospel. And after them came many others who go out into the world still and visit different parts of the world and 
talk about the gospel, talk about the wonderful hope of the Bible, the solution, in fact, to what God has in, to, for all of the issues that we have around us in the world. And that, that's why we're here tonight as well. We're here to talk about the gospel. Tonight is all about telling people about God's wonderful plan of salvation. Anyone who wants to listen, we're happy to talk. And as I've already mentioned, the, the word, the gospel, is the summary of what it is that God has uh, sort of embedded this message in. So the word gospel simply means good news. This is a message of good news. It's a message of hope. And this is one of the great things about the Bible. It's full from one end to the other of this message of hope. Because this is a message about salvation. God wants to save people. That's what God is actually all about. And I've picked just three quotes out of literally hundreds that we could have looked at to try and sketch what this idea of good news that, that is embedded from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation in the, in the Bible really is for us. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul is writing and he tells us that it's God's kindness that calls us, God's leading us because of his kindness, his desire to save, to repentance. And so that's the first step in understanding the Bible. We need to repent. We need to change from one thing to another. That's, that's the idea of repentance. Well, in the first chapter of the same book, Paul says that the gospel itself contains power. It's the power for salvation to everyone who believes and the righteousness of God is revealed. Right? So the rightness of God, the, the way that God acts and behaves and, and everything that is really God is revealed in this idea of the gospel. And so there's the second stage. We've seen we need to repent. Now we see that we need belief. So, so this is a development of faith. This is, so this is seeing something that's beyond the present and understanding that there's, there's actually things that we need to be able to see beyond, to see into the invisible. And, and this is a, obviously a, a pretty challenging thing for many people to understand and, and to accept. And Paul goes further in that passage and he talks about how creation itself witnesses to God. So the things that we see around us, the beauties of nature, are the things that God has put in place that speak to the human mind. And, and when you see pictures taken perhaps from the, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope that has recently been launched and you see the beauties and the intricacies of space, when you see the, the beauty of, of deep sea life or, or whatever it might be, whatever sort of things you're, you're particularly interested in, these are the things that God has put in place that are designed to intrigue and to, to call us. And so Paul says um, that there is no excuse having seen, having witnessed those wonderful things, to turn you back on God. Because those are the things that God is using to shout to us that he does exist. And finally, in Acts chapter 8, we've got a reference to a man named Philip, who is preaching the good news. And that's the same word as is translated as gospel in uh, Romans chapter 1. It's, it's the good news of the gospel. And he's telling people about two things. And we see a, a really good summary of what the gospel message actually is. It's about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And notice also in that pa passage, on belief 
of the message that Peter, uh, Philip rather, was, was preaching, people began to be baptised. And so there's the next thing that needs to happen. We need to repent, we need to believe, we need to have faith and, and understand what's, what, what God's message is, and then we need to take it a little further and we need to actually go through the rite of baptism. Now, the name Jesus Christ means Yah will save through his anointed. So the, the name Jesus is Yah shall save and Christ is anointed. So, so there's, there's the message of hope and of salvation that God's giving us. And I, I want to return to this idea of the good news of the gospel in a few minutes' time. So, so just to summarise that, the good news of the gospel is that God wants to give you a place in his kingdom. And he's done that by providing his son, Jesus Christ, as our saviour. But before we talk more about the gospel and talk more about the conditions that we might expect to see in the world, I want to spend a little bit more time just sketching out why what we see is happening in the world is, is occurring. And the first place I want to refer to is Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul has gone to the city of Athens in Greece and he is speaking to the academics and the philosophers in the city of Athens and he wants to tell them about the gospel. He wants to tell them about a God that they don't know about. And in that section I've got summarised on screen, there's really three particular point, so I'd like to just touch on a little. Verses 23, 24 through to 26, he tells us that God is the creator of all things. So God gives life, God sustains life, and God has complete control. So he controls time, he controls the rise and fall of nations, he has control over all of the, the things that are occurring around us. And so as a consequence, Paul says, God deserves our respect. God deserves respect, but not only does he deserve it, he can rightfully command it. As the creator, it is his prerogative to command. And when he says he wants to do something, it's his prerogative, it's his right to follow through and to do those things. Between verses 27 and 29 of the chapter We've got the second main point that he, he's making. Despite God's power and greatness, he's, he's done all of these things, but he's told us about it. And he's done that because he's seeking response. God wants to save. So the reason that God has told us about what he's done and what he's like is because he wants us to get to know him. He wants to have a relationship. He wants to save and so by thinking about what God does and why, he intends that everyone should seek him and should come to know him. And he's made the first move. So he's, he's taken the step towards us. It's now for us to take a step towards him and meet him. And the third point is made between verses 30 and 31. God has appointed a day in which there will be judgment. So here's the warning for us. This is the warning for us, for our generation, and it's been sounding for about 2,000 years. 
God's patience is only going to last for so long. There's going to be a limit to the extent of his mercy towards people who are unresponsive and who are derogatory towards him. And this conforms to the pattern that we were talking about earlier. We've got that pattern of waiting, we've got got mercy, which is followed by a set time. There is a set time in which judgment will fall and it's going to be done by Jesus Christ. And the proof, Paul says, that this is true and that we can trust it is the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the grave. There's a man who was dead who is now alive. So nearly 2,000 years ago, God issued a warning to all people everywhere and he said, now is the time that you need to respond. I'm running out of patience. And this was God exercising his prerogative as the creator to command. And he says, I want you to, to sit up and take notice and to do something. So he wants people to repent. So there's, there's the first step that we, we uh, discussed earlier. And to repent means that we need to turn around and we need to find what it is we're doing wrong and we need to turn our back on it and go in the opposite direction. So God wants us to find out about his commandments. He wants us to turn to him. But the majority of people throughout the last 2,000 years have totally ignored this and, and have not done what God has asked. But God has this moral right to command. As the creator, he has a moral right to command our repentance. He has the right to correct and to manipulate events such that what he has designed comes to pass. God has the moral right to punish if it's necessary. And ultimately, God is going to be right to judge the world through the judge that he has appointed, who is Jesus Christ. And when God appointed Jesus Christ as the saviour of the world, it opened up the opportunity for us to respond. And that opportunity still exists. He's also going to close that time of opportunity. And so this is why there's an imperative on all of us to think about this and to work this through and get to the point where we can respond. But the question that we need to consider is what data has God given us that tells us about the conditions that will persist on the earth at the time that Jesus Christ is going to return to perform this work of judgment that God has set down that he will ask him to do. We come across to the book of Luke. We're going to start in chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation or, or outward show. So, so it's not, not something that um, is necessarily going to be easy to pick. And as, as this passage goes on, we, we find that he turns his attention to speaking to his disciples. So between um, verses 22 and 27, he's speaking to his disciples now. 
And the key verses that I want to pick up on are found in verses 26 and 27. So here's, here's information that Jesus is giving about what conditions we should expect to see in the world at the time that Jesus is going to return to perform the work of judgment that we've spoken about in Acts chapter 17. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And so here's a reference back to where we started. The days of Noah, those days which were filled with violence and corruption, God's summary of that time. And Jesus says, you can expect that when I return, the world will look like it did at the time of Noah. But notice he doesn't mention violence or corruption at all. He talks about the things which caused the violence and the corruption. Not that eating and drinking causes violence or corruption, but when you set God aside and your life becomes centred around eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and trading and building and all the other things of daily life and, and God is excluded, then the mind of human beings naturally descends down that path and we end up in a situation where you have a society which is characterised by violence and corruption. And it would be difficult to suggest that our society, even here in sleepy old Adelaide, isn't characterised by violence and corruption. Well, turn a few pages across to our reading for tonight, Luke chapter 21. When Jesus spoke to his disciples just a few days before his death on the cross, he had a very particular message for them. He really wanted them to understand what the world was going to be like at the time of his return. And, and that's understandable, isn't it? He, he has very little time left of them. And so he gives more information about this time when he's going to return and bring about God's judgments on those who have not repented. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 25 through to 28, as we've got up there on the screen, he says that we should expect to see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And these are Bible terms for national governments and for religious systems and for prominent individuals. So the sun, moon and stars are, are symbolic of, of those who are in ruling and, and uh, positions and, and in power. And so this is, this is a, a time where we, we should be expecting to see things happening in the political um, sphere around the globe, and, and indeed we are. He goes on and he says that we should expect to see nations in distress, and that's certainly true as well. The sea and the waves, Bible terminology for the common people, um, they're going to be like raging waves, so, so like, a, like swells generated by a storm that whip up um, foam. And, and, and this, this is, again, the sort of thing that we're starting to see happening around the world. And then he talks about perplexity, and this is a word which means to have no way out. There's a, there's a constriction, a narrowing of the way. The, the options are running out. 
the choices that can be made about how to manage the economy or, or other issues that, that might be around. The choices about how to manage a, a, a dictator who has a whole lot of nuclear weapons become very, very constricted and narrow and it's, it's very complex. And sometimes there might be a choice of one bad thing versus another bad thing. What's the worst bad? Um, and, and that's the situation that, that Jesus says the world is going to be entering into. And because there's no options, you get fear. People are afraid. And all around us, people are afraid. People are afraid of what is happening and people are afraid of what might happen. And, and that might be something that you uh, have considered to yourself. Um, the the spectre of nuclear war in Europe is, is presently a maybe not a, a realistic prospect, but it's being talked about. And that in itself, nuclear war in Europe, or the, the thought, the, the, the talk of, is a real-life example of what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. We're going to see national governments destabilised. Some might even be overthrown. But in the middle of this, Jesus says, I'm going to make my appearance. And it's going to be with power and with great glory. At that point in time, yes, he's here for judgment, but ultimately his purpose is to establish the kingdom of God and set up the solution that God has promised to the mess that the world has found itself in. And the key takeaway is found in verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And so those things we can see clearly are beginning to happen. And so the message from Jesus here to his disciples is now is the time that you need to sit up and take notice. Don't allow the events to roll over you and to cause you to be, be dulled and, and send you off to sleep. No, these are the things you need to be paying attention to. This is the time where you need to take this seriously. And so God does have a solution, as, as we've been saying. Judgment is of course coming because of the failure of mankind to respond to God. God, God has been gracious. He's given that call about 2,000 years ago to repent. Most people have ignored that. But whilst God's mercy decrees that we still wait for Jesus Christ to return to establish his kingdom and, and to pour out that judgment, we've got an opportunity. Us sitting in this room and, and, and anyone that we might talk to about the, the great hope of the gospel has an opportunity right now to respond, to repent and to turn our backs on all of those things. And we can learn what it is that God plans to use and to do in order to address this problem. As, as I've been saying, part of the solution is to pour out judgment. Part of it is that there's a rightness about pouring out judgments on those who have chosen to do the opposite of what God has asked of them. But the much larger part of this solution is partly already done. Jesus Christ has died, he's been raised, salvation is available. And the other part is yet to come. The kingdom of God is going to be established here upon the earth and everyone has been invited to be part of that event. And so maybe if you uh, turn back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 72 is quite a wonderful 
description of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. It starts, that psalm starts, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And this is a, a, a psalm that was originally written about David's son Solomon, but is what we call a messianic psalm. It's really applicable to the time of the kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus Christ has established the kingdom of God here upon the earth and is going to do the things that we read in this psalm perfectly. Verse 2, he's going to judge the people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. And as we sort of just pick the eyes out of this, just think about the contrast that this represents to what you see around us in the world. Today, there is no true judgment. We can't read the hearts and the minds of others. Judges are corruptible. Judges can't read hearts and minds. They can't rightly discern between what is true and what is false when a witness is testifying. Jesus can do that. He's he's a, a man who is able to see through all of the corruption and he's able to discern what is right and what is wrong he's going to judge the poor of the people he's going to save the children of the needy he's going to break in pieces the oppressor this is something that we're not capable of doing anymore uh, at all we've never been capable of doing this Um, as as a society or as a as a a species we can't rightly do this The, the problem of the poor has ever been with us and it will be with us until Jesus Christ comes and he implements the just principles that are going to be part of this kingdom that God is going to establish. We're going to see respect for God in verse 5. Thou fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. So again, a contrast today where God is, is ridiculed, God is mocked, people who believe in God are mocked. The time's going to come where that's all going to get turned around. Verse 7, we're going to see true peace, something that um, is desperately sought for, but is eternally elusive to human beings. In his days shall the righteous flourish, abundance of peace as long as the moon endures. We're going to see righteous behaviour as well. The righteous will flourish. Those who choose to model their lifestyle and their thinking and their approach to life on what God says and and how God thinks are going to flourish instead of being ridiculed and and suppressed as they are today. We're going to have a stable and and a universal judgment. He'll have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Everyone on the planet is going to come under the auspices of this just government this one true government which is going to be capable of providing everything that the world so desperately requires. It's not going to be like the democratic administrations we we have now where they're focused primarily on winning the election and holding on and then if they're lucky winning the next term. It's, It's not going to be like that system at all. It's not going to be like the dictators and the, the power-hungry um, individuals that behave more like bandit warlords in, in some of the South American countries that you might hear about. This is going to be a truly just king. And he's going to rule for the good of all. And it's going to be a, a tremendous contrast to what we see now. 
there's going to be effective help for the poor, and that's, that's something that we can, we can all look forward to. So instead of the conditions that are so poor for, for those individuals, the tent cities and the, the slums and the homelessness, living under bridges, um, I, I don't know how many of you work in town, but I've noticed as I've gone about my employment in town, there's, there's been a, a substantial increase in the number of homeless people that are in the city of Adelaide. Uh, and, and multiply that by, by many times when you go to other parts of the world. Aid agencies and the, the UNHCR and, and all the other people that try to help these people have no real capacity to help to change because they can't change regimes, they can't change the weather, they can't bring lasting improvements to these people's lives. They can provide a bit of food, a bit of water, maybe, maybe a tent as shelter, but they can't really go too much further. That's a strong contrast to what we're going to see when Christ is ruling because all of those things will be at an end. There won't be such a thing as homelessness. That will all be addressed. And there's going to be sufficient food. So, so no longer will we have people living on the breadline. No longer will we have people living with the, the spectre of, of giant locust plates taking out all of their, their food stocks or, or droughts that last for years, taking out their ability to... to uh, um, grow their own food. No longer will we have the, the issues of, of war preventing countries who do have food being able to export to those who don't. That's all going to change. Verse 16, we see there'll be a handful of corn on the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. So here's the time where even on the top of mountains where there's, there's no fertility, we're going to experience fertility. And the book of Amos actually says that the people who are ploughing fields will be preparing to, to plough and the people who are trying to reap the last crop will still be out there working, gathering that crop in. It's going to be a tremendous change to the productivity of the earth that, that we have to look forward to. This psalm also reveals to us the characteristics of a king, a righteous king, who is going to be set over this kingdom by his father. And there's no comparison. When you, when you look at that uh, list of characteristics, there's no comparison to any ruler extant in the, in the world, nor any ruler that has been passed. This is a king who is like God. The characteristics of Jesus Christ we've got listed up on that screen are the characteristics of God himself because Jesus learned those characteristics from God whilst he was um, on the earth. He suffered trial and he was helped through those trials to develop the character of God. And this is a, a mechanism that God uses for us as well. We experience trials in our lives and this is one of the reasons why we experience some of the things that we do. It's in order to teach us, it's to shape us, it's to mould us and to allow us to develop characteristics that are more like God's. Now, you can't obviously equate everything one for one to any specific thing and, and that's certainly not what I'm trying to say. But some things are happening in our lives for that purpose and, and we need to understand that and we need to allow God to work in our lives in order to developing us those characteristics and to create a copy of himself in us and that's ultimately what God wants he wants us to look like him 
And so this future era looks to be a pretty great time to live, a little bit better than, than now. And, it, and uh, now is the best that has ever been, most likely, for, for most people, the majority of people on the earth. But what we have to look forward to in the future is far better than anything you could possibly dream of now. To be ruled over by the only truly righteous, unselfish and just ruler that has ever been seen in the history of the earth will be something to really look forward to. So the question is, how, how can we be part of it? What is it that we need to do in order to be involved? Well, the Bible reveals that if you want to be part of God's kingdom in the future, there's certain things that you need to be doing now. There's certain um, things that you need to take on board. So the first thing is you need to know about God. John chapter 17, verse 3. It's life eternal to know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So here's, here's the first thing. We need to know what God wants of us. We need to understand that. We need to spend time working that through. We need to allow it to develop in us faith. Something that allows us to see beyond the present, to see beyond what is the, the here and now, and to understand that there are certain things that God is doing that allow us to see beyond what is literally in front of our eyes. And that, that's, that's uh, what faith is, um, well, it's certainly a part of what faith is. So God wants us to know him. He wants us to develop this faith in him. Having done that, Mark chapter 16, verse 16, says that we need to be baptised. Repent. Um, but Repent is uh, a, a consequence of coming to know God and what he requires. And then belief and baptism results in salvation. And that's not salvation in the future, that's actually salvation now. God promises that if you are baptised into Christ, you are saved now. You are part of his plan, you are part of the way that he is, is going to work, you are part of his future right now, as long as you remain in that state. Right? So that's, that's really the point of the next one. We need to continue. So continue in the faith. So if we continue to live according to God's principles, that's the condition on which God says, I'm going to consider you as part of my future. And so part of that is that by being baptised into Jesus Christ, we have access to the forgiveness of sin. And so that's the big problem. That's the thing that separates us from God. And so having dealt with that problem, God says, I'm willing to count you as being without sin because you are in Christ, you've been baptised. And because of that, you are covered. And so I, I can see that you are trying to develop my characteristics. I can see that you are trying to live in accordance with the principles that I've established. I can see that you're taking notice of the things that I've asked. And so I'm going to account you as though you have not sinned. And, and that's the process of, of forgiveness that is open to all of us who have been baptised into Christ. And that then leads to the natural consequence which Paul deals with in Romans chapter 8 where he says that if you are in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation for sin because we have access through Christ to the forgiveness of sin. And so the state of the world really is a wake-up call. It's telling us now is the time to 
look up. Now's the time to take note. There is a better time that God has promised. And we, we see the perplexity beginning to occur. We see the anger and the confusion that is reigning amongst the nations. We see wars in progress. We hear about rumours of wars. We see all of those things that Jesus dealt with in, in Luke chapter 21. And we see that the world around us is becoming more and more like the times of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. So we see a fixation on entertainment, on generating wealth. We see a fixation on, on all of those things that Jesus mentioned in, in Luke chapter 17. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 6, we see the world descending into violence and corruption. And so the economy is not going well, the cost of living pressure we're all very well aware of. It makes life increasingly tough for, for many, especially those who are on, on lower incomes. And these are all markers that God is giving us that suggest that now is the time to take this seriously and to act. And we have an education system in this country and, and across most of the Western world which is dominated by the philosophies of humanism. And as, as the principles of humanism take root and as, as the fruits of the, um, the education revolution of the 1970s really starts to bear its fruit, the people who are coming through that system have no moral basis on which to live their lives. And, and this is the, the experience that, that we have here in the Western world in particular. Humanism is, is dedicated to elevating man and eradicating any thought of God. And they're doing a great job of it at the moment. But this is another sign to us that the return of Jesus Christ is near. That the, the time of judgment that God has set down, as we spoke about from Acts chapter 17, is not too far away. And so finally, the, the appeal that I guess we, we would make to you is that you consider this. And um, I'm more than happy to speak more about the reasons for oppression and, and why some of the things that have happened and, and how the pattern that I, I mentioned sort of works in, in more detail, if that's something that you would like. Um, but think about this. Repent. You know, listen to, to the things that God is asking. Respond to what he's saying. Respond to the call of the gospel because... What God's offered is, is something that is a, a massive contrast to what we see around us in the world. Baptism is, is an essential step of this. That allows you to become part of those people that God has chosen to include in that future that he has promised, in that solution that we're talking about when the kingdom of God is established. And with us, we would anticipate that you have the hope of living in a world which is dramatically different from the one that we presently are in. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, 
Most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.